0: This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, during the American Revolution, King George III of England and his loyalists would frequently intercept uh, correspondence between spies and and those of the uh, American revolutionaries. And this one time, King George uh, intercepted a note, uh, and he was somewhat taken aback by it, and then he noticed that he, that he uh, intercepted a note like this multiple times. And the, the note in the correspondence that King George uh, read said this. It said, we have no king but King Jesus. Well, 200 years later, in 1974, at a concert, I, I believe in California, there was a fan in the crowd who held up a sign and yelled loudly what was printed on that sign happened to be an Elvis concert, and so Elvis stopped the concert, and he looked out in the crowd, and he looked at the woman who was holding the sign, and the sign read, Elvis is the king. And to his credit, Elvis responded like those American revolutionaries whenever he looked at that woman, and he said, no, darling, Jesus is the king. Well, this morning, we will consider Psalm 110, And like the American revolutionaries and something like Elvis, we can say that Psalm 110 declares this truth. Jesus Christ is the king. Psalm 110 is a coronation psalm. It's a coronation psalm, a royal psalm for the Davidic king. But this psalm transcends any earthly coronation. It is not a coronation psalm for King David, its author. Instead, this is a coronation psalm for a heavenly king that at the, time of, at the time of the writing, at the time in Israel's history, a king that was yet to come. This psalm looks forward to that day when the heavenly king will reign from Zion. Psalm 110, it's one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. And the good news of the, of the Bible and the good news of this psalm is that this heavenly king has now come. And that's why we're here today. We're here today to worship King Jesus, and no psalm in the Psalter is more clearly messianic, points more clearly to Jesus Christ than Psalm 110. And so just to put it plainly, Psalm 10 is about Jesus and about his kingdom. There really is no king but King Jesus. And so we will look at Psalm 110 this morning under three headings. They're printed in the back of your bulletin. The first is the king at the right hand of God, the king at the right hand of God. Secondly, the king rules God's people, the king rules God's people. And third, the king conquers God's enemies. So now hear the word of God from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 1 teaches us about God, and it teaches us about God's kingdom. First, verse 1 teaches us about God and his Christ. Psalm 110 is a hard psalm to understand when you just first read it, because there's three actors in a relatively short psalm. So there's six, uh, seven verses in Psalm 110, and there's three actors within that psalm. You have David, the author of the text, and the Israelite king at the time, who, who uh, is one of the actors. He's the primary agent in this psalm, so King David, then you have the Lord, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, Most Bibles translate this Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, in this way, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and the translators uh, do it to distinguish from the first Lord and the second Lord, so you'll see that there's a second Lord in in this psalm, And that is a more conventional spelling, capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. English translators translate the Hebrew word Adonai, Adonai, as this Lord. So anytime that you come across in your Bible the capitalized Lord, that's Yahweh. And the standard Lord, the standard spelling for Lord, that's Adonai in the Hebrew. And so what we have here in Psalm 110 is King David prophesying, prophesying, he's speaking a word from Lord Yahweh about Lord Adonai. So we have King David, Lord Yahweh, and Lord Adonai. Verse 1 teaches us the coming Davidic king is David's Lord Adonai. The psalm reminds us of the covenant that Yahweh the Lord made with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where we read the covenant words from the prophet, Na- uh, prophet Nathan. There's no need to turn there. But in 2 Samuel 7, we read this. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh the Lord declares to you that Yahweh the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." So, here in this Davidic covenant, uh, we see what is fulfilled partially, it's fulfilled partially in David's son Solomon. Uh, But God's promise to David is of an everlasting kingdom, it's of an everlasting throne, where a Davidic king will rule on behalf of God forever. And so, here in Psalm 110, verse 1, King David recounts his covenant with God. And he himself prophesies about this future king, the Lord Adonai. And David teaches us that this king is in a position of authority, a position of honor as he is seated at the right hand of God. This king is a heavenly king unlike all other kings, unlike David, unlike Solomon. And ultimately what David is teaching us here in verse 1 is that this king, this Lord Adonai, is God himself. Psalm 110 is the most quoted, is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. As the apostles and the scribes draw a direct line from David's Lord Adonai in Psalm 110.1 directly to Jesus. In the Apostle Apostle Peter's Pentecost sermon of Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up before the crowd at Pentecost and he says this. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died. and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. David's Lord Adonai I. Peter is telling us in verse 1 of Psalm 110 is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Psalm 110, verse 1, tells us that Jesus is the Lord Adonai. It also gives us the context of, of Jesus' kingdom, of God's kingdom. And it tells us about the advance of God's kingdom in the world. Verse 1 sets the context for how the Lord Adonai, Jesus Christ, carries out his mission from God. A mission of advancing the kingdom of God. We learn in verse 1 that the kingdom of God and his Christ will come. It will come through judgment. There is coming a day when all people will acknowledge Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God. Some, like many in this room, will acknowledge it gladly, willingly, with joy, while others will do so grudgingly after their defeat. And their judgment. All people will submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as King, freely in holy garments or shattered on the day of God's wrath. And so the context of God's mission in the earth is that all people begin as God's enemies. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. We are all children of wrath, sinners in our natural state. But God is saving a people. God is saving a people who will give themselves freely to their king in holiness. And so when we approach the rest of the psalm, verses 2 through 7, we will see the dichotomy of how this king, about how Jesus Christ rules God's people and how Jesus will conquer God's enemies. How Jesus rules God's people and conquers God's enemies. The Lord will either subdue his enemies, making them his people, Or he will conquer his enemies, exercising judgment on the day of God's wrath. And so as we think about these verses in light of the Lord Jesus, it's helpful even to think about verses 2 through 4 in light of his first appearance. In light of his first appearance. To think about these verses in light of Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into that holy city surrounded by shouts of hosannas to the king. Awaiting a Good Friday execution when Jesus made a sacrifice once for all for the sins of God's people. And we can think of verses 5 and 6 in light of his second coming. In light of his second coming when Jesus will finally judge all men and he will finally conquer all of God's enemies forever. In his first coming, verses 2 through 4, the Lord Jesus performs his priestly duties after the order of Melchizedek. And in his second coming, verses 5 and 6, the Lord Jesus executes the final judgment among the nations. So this is the framework for the rest of Psalm 110. This is the context of the advancement of God's kingdom in the world. Now hear the word of God from Psalm Psalm 110, verses 2 and 4. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In these three verses, David teaches us five ways that the king will rule God's people. Five ways the king will rule God's people. First, David teaches us in verse 2 that the king will not only rule the people of Zion, the Jewish nation, but from Zion, the very heart of Israel, from Jerusalem itself, the Lord will send forth the king's mighty scepter. The Jews thought that the Messiah would come to establish the kingdom of Israel, to rule the nation of Israel. But here, in verse 2, King David teaches us that the Messianic kingdom may originate in Jerusalem, but from that place, all nations of the earth will be blessed. In verse 2, we see the mustard seed that grows into the Great Commission. Zion was the seedbed of the kingdom of Christ on earth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, that kingdom's adva- kingdom advances through all the earth, even here and now today in Houston. God is making true to his promise here in verse 2 to send forth the mighty scepter, the mighty reign of King Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Church, we need to remember that God's reign and rule is not isolated to one geographic location on the earth, but it is meant to cover all the earth. Jesus is meant to reign and rule over every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Secondly, David teaches us again from verse 2 that the advance of the Lord's kingdom is not without opposition. It is not without opposition. God sends forth from Zion the king's mighty scepter, yet notice the declaration for the king to rule in the midst of his enemies. The king will rule in the midst of his enemies. God's kingdom will advance The king will rule God's people, but the kingdom's kingdom's advance is not without opposition. It's not without opposition. In fact, the people of God, those who live under the reign of God, have faced opposition from the very beginning, from the slander of God in the garden, to the family feuds that ended in death between Cain and Abel, to the foolishness of the Tower of Babel whether the Egyptian enslavement or Babylonian captivity, whether the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Roman Empire or any other manifestation of evil in this world today, behind all of this, all of the enemies of God, is Satan and sin and death. The kingdom of darkness is utterly opposed to God's kingdom of light. But did you notice that the psalm declares that the king will rule? He will rule in the midst of his enemies. He will not be overcome. He will rule. And if he will rule in the midst of his enemies, then the king will protect and defend his people. The king will protect and defend his people. Christian, in this world you will face many trials. You are at war with an opposing kingdom. And so as you seek first the kingdom of God, rest assured, brothers and sisters in Christ, that opposition will come your way. The world is opposed to God and will be opposed to you. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our sinful flesh will drag us back like a dog to its vomit, to temptation and to iniquity and the devil that salacious serpent will use all will use his all to whisper wicked words of doubt and despair and discouragement as we live this life in faith in Jesus but brothers and sisters be not afraid for king jesus will rule in the midst of his enemies be not discouraged king jesus has overcome the world be not Uh, Do not despair, be not in the midst of despair, because King Jesus has crucified the flesh. Do not doubt, but know that the victory is certain, for King Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it best. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God that King Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies and rules in the midst of our enemies too. And because he rules over God's people so well, David teaches us third that God's people give themselves freely in service to their king. In verse 3, David speaks to the people of God without hesitation or doubt, giving all that they are in service to their King. And fourth, David teaches us that God's people give themselves freely in holiness to their king. Verse four uses the phrase holy garments that signifies that God's people are set apart, that they are given uniquely to their king. And so Christian, this should be our desire to serve King Jesus with no reservation, to pursue holiness in all of our life. Jesus has graciously subdued us He has saved us, He protects us, He defends us against our enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil, and He restrains evil, He protects you from the greatest harms of sin and death and hell. And so with grateful hearts, we give ourselves to Him to do His will, to walk in newness of life, to obey His commands because we love our King. But God's people love him not only because he is our king. Fifth, David teaches us in verse 4 that this king is also our priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The history of Israel is scattered with kings who were rebuked and punished by God for faithlessness and disobedience. They tried to usurp their role as king. And in one instance in particular, the king was disobedient by usurping his role as king, trying to be a priest. In in 1 Samuel chapter 13, this foolish king, Saul, took upon himself the role of a priest before God as he made a burnt offering for the people of Israel at Gilgal. With such foolishness, King Saul lost his kingdom Forever. So we read, the prophet Samuel says to King Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And Samuel continues, The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded. And so we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of that covenant that God made with King David of an everlasting throne, of a kingdom that will not end. And this Davidic throne was established because a foolish king could not be a priest for God's people. But King David tells us here in Psalm 110 verse 4 of a better king, of a king who is altogether different from Saul, of a king who is altogether different from David, of the only king who can be both a king and a king and a priest for his people. Where King Saul could not be a priest for God's people, King Jesus is the high priest of our confession. Where King David functioned as a priest only temporarily, King Jesus is a priest forever. Where the Israelite priesthood was established through Levitical order, King Jesus is a priest king like Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Where the Levitical priesthood could not save, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and calves to take away sins, King Jesus appeared once, for all, to take away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. For by a single offering, Jesus Christ, nailed to the cross, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to us I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more because of King Jesus. And where there is forgiveness of these, the Scripture says there is no longer any need for offering for sin. Christian, the Lord Jesus is your priest-king. He has made you his child by offering up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God toward you and for your sin. Jesus has reconciled you to God and he makes continual intercession for us. Even now, in this moment, Jesus is interceding for us before the throne of God. Rest in his mercy, Christian. Run to him in your heart. Confess your sin to Him. Let go of any good works. Stop justifying yourself. They are but filthy rags before a holy God. Receive the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Rejoice in His love for you and trust Him as your priest king. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to offer ourselves freely to the Lord, to draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed pure by his holy water. Beloved, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for our priest king who has promised is faithful. He's faithful to rule over us by his grace, by his mercy, and, and in love for us, his people. So in verses 2 through 4, we have seen that God, rules God the, the king rules God's people. He rules God's people in in various ways. And we see and we learned in those verses that God's kingdom is not without its enemies. So now let us turn and consider what Psalm 110 teaches us about the king and about his enemies. Hear the word of God from Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. In verse 4, David is, is quoting Yahweh as Yahweh speaks a promise about David's Lord. Uh, when he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, David is, is quoting that back to the Lord Yahweh. And then here in verse 5, David simply speaks to the Lord Yahweh. In verse 5, Uh, He ties it back to verse 1 whenever he he says the Lord Adonai sits at your right hand. So David is speaking back to the Lord Yahweh. The Lord Adonai sits at your right hand. David here is agreeing with God that the Lord Adonai, that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and that God will make the Lord's enemies his footstool. And so the same priest king who rules over God's people is a warrior king who will conquer God. God's enemies. The rest of verses five and six will unpack for us, the reader, that what this means with startling and with terrifying detail. It starts in the second half of verse five: the Lord will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And in the first half of verse six, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Psalm 110 teaches us that God will execute judgment against His enemies on the day of His wrath. It is not a question of if the wicked will be punished. If God will execute judgment against His enemies. It is simply a question of when. These verses point to God's judgment here and now and they whisper the judgment that is written for us in the book of Revelation of God's final judgment. The kings of Israel would fight the enemies of Israel in battle, but here God declares that, as one theologian put it, the final day will come when the world as we know it will unravel and human beings will shrink in fear from the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The judgments of God disclose the holiness of God. His judgments are true and just. They are not arbitrary or capricious. God's enemies receive God's justice. They receive the punishment due to all who would sin against a holy God. And from the second half of verse 5, he will shatter the, shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. In the second half of verse 6, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. We learn from these verses that no one will stand on the day of God's judgment not even kings, and not even chiefs of this world. Those who are seated in the positions of power and prominence in this world will also face God's judgment. They, along with all of God's enemies, will not stand on the day of God's wrath. These verses teach us that all of God's enemies over the entire world will fall under the right judgment of God. Brothers and sisters, take comfort Take comfort that evil will not have the last word. Every act of unrepentant evil in this world is storing up an eternal weight of wrath. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. He will repay. But brothers and sisters, at the same time, let verses 5 and 6 move us to compassion. Brothers and sisters, you were once an enemy of God. You were a child of his wrath. But God loved you and had mercy on you through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, our high priest, made atonement for us. And Jesus, our great king, has given us a great commission to be ministers of reconciliation, to plead with God's enemies, to put down their arms against God, to be reconciled to God. Jesus did not come into the world the first time to condemn the world, but to save it And we, Christians, are ambassadors of our priest-king here and now. We should tell men and women of the coming judgment of God. We should tell them about a priest-king who has made atonement for sin, who will save them from the wrath of God, who will save them if only they would repent and believe. This is our mission, church, to see all the fullness of God's elect come to faith in Him who will judge the living and the dead. And so my unbelieving friend, this is my hope and my plea for you this morning. Put down your arms against God. I don't know your particular sin. I don't know why, why you have chosen to be an enemy of God. Maybe you're angry at God. Maybe you're clinging to some sort of good work. Maybe you're judging yourself against others. Maybe you just don't care. You like your life just fine. You're healthy, wealthy, wise in your own eyes. Friend, whatever it is that keeps you from God, you need to know that judgment is coming. That judgment will come against all of God's enemies. And friend, you are an enemy of God. I was too. So we, are all, so we all are in our natural state, born into this world as sinners. We have both sinned against God, but the good news, friend, is that God has made a way for us to escape the coming judgment. A way to go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. God is rich in mercy and love. And God sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to bear the wrath that you deserve. And after Jesus died, God raised Jesus from the dead, showing to us all that His sacrifice was sufficient in God's sight, that God was satisfied, that His wrath was satisfied. Jesus Christ has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Jesus will be your high priest, friend, and He will save you from judgment if only you would turn to Him in faith and you would trust Him. Friend, please talk to me Talk to a member of this congregation. Talk to to the person who brought you this morning about this salvation. Talk to us about how we were once enemies of God, but how God in his grace has saved us and made us a friend. Well, as this royal psalm comes to an end in verse 7, it teaches us that God's God's judgment is final and God's judgment is complete that the war is over. Verse 7 says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Uh, this verse it gives us a sense that a, a warrior king uh, is standing there after battle, stooping down to take a drink of the water, and he lifts up his head and he looks out over the battlefield, and he sees that the war is over, that the battle is won, and that judgment has been rendered. And so after the Lord shatters kings and chiefs, after he executes judgment among the nations, the Lord God will gather with his people in that heavenly Zion, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. The walls of that city will be 12 by 12, high and impenetrable, that no evil can come in. Yet the gate of the city will be open forever, never to be closed. In that new Jerusalem, death will be no more, Nor will there be crying, nor mourning, nor pain anymore for the old order of things has passed away. And all of God's enemies will have been vanquished. And all of God's people will be secure with their King forever. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, we pray. Let's pray. God in heaven. We praise you that you are a God who rules over your people so well. God, we praise you for the grace and mercy you have shown us in Jesus Christ, taking us from enemies of God and making us your people, friends of God, brothers with Jesus, co-heirs with Him. God, we pray that we would be faithful in holiness, that we would be faithful in your great commission. God, we pray that we would be a church marked by heralds of the pro, uh, proclaiming that judgment is coming but that you have provided a way. And God, we pray that the enemies that might be in this room, that they would turn. and They would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that we will be ever faithful to you as you have been ever faithful to us until that day when we will be with you in the new Jerusalem. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.